0: Is safeguarding trendy? You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome to Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast. This is a mini-series of podcasts within the 39 Essex Public Law Podcast. Here, we look at how safeguarding is developing not only here at home, but around the world – This mini-series of podcasts is being produced by 39 Essex Chambers, and I'm your host, Ian Brownham. As a barrister, I'm probably best known for my work with safeguarding adults. But in this series, we're gonna look at safeguarding children and touch on issues of child protection too. It's exciting to say that we've got a huge variety of guests lined up for you to meet and hear from along the way. From the world of academia, social work, faith and more, And of course, some of my colleagues from Chambers will be joining me along the way to share their experiences, as well as some of the solicitors that we work with in Chambers. And while safeguarding is a term, concept or phrase, it's probably best known in the United Kingdom and Ireland. We're a Chambers with an international reach, and we're asked to advise on international issues. Safeguarding is an international issue. And we hope this series will start to explore some of those aspects that go beyond our borders. So in this first episode, I want to ask what might sound like a silly question. And that silly question is this. Is safeguarding trendy? And I don't mean are the lawyers, social workers and other professionals involved in safeguarding cool and hip, as quite clearly I know we are. Uh, No, in this episode... I want to look at the impact that trends, shared experience, and learning from past issues has had on how we deal with safeguarding issues moving forwards. And I want to go down memory lane for a moment to to when I was just starting out at the bar. In the early days of my uh, practice, which seems like a long time ago, um, I did a lot of criminal defence work. And a group of clients, which I represented often, were young people who found themselves as defendants in the Youth Court. Now, the vast majority of my work was in and around London. But just over a decade ago, things started to change for me. And I found myself being sent to a variety of coastal towns, mostly on the south coast of England. And when I arrived in those um, south coast towns and I went to those local youth courts, many of my clients were not local at all, but they were young people who came from London. And they were young people who came from London who were accused of drugs-related offences. Those drugs-related offences, though, didn't happen in London. They were said to have happened in those coastal towns. And a lot of us at that time who were working with young people in the criminal courts had had the same experience. Now, all of you at home who are listening to this will have instantly um, noticed what I'm talking about. I'm talking about county lines. But back then, we, we certainly didn't use the term county lines. But over a decade on, county lines is something which is not only a term which we would use in criminal justice, but it's something we would use if we were a safeguarding professional. And it's something that started to be used by the media too, and by the public at large. And you can see why that is. County lines is a big deal. Between the years of 2018 to 2019, the National Crime Agency state, There were 1,500 drug trafficking routes of this sort in the United Kingdom, which rose to around 3,000. They said that the estimated turnover of county lines activities through the UK was roughly £500 million in a year. That's a huge issue that not only affects parts of the country, but all over. So when in 2018, the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, set up a programme that dealt specifically with county lines, and nobody really would have been surprised. Perhaps the numbers involved, though, are surprising. And that programme, that some of you will remember, was called a, 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 described as a rescue and response programme in its first year it referred 568 young people to support channels in 2019 the mayor of london said that it had found more than 4000 children and young people who have been found to have links with county line activities so county lines is a is a really good example a trend was recognised Specific steps were taken to safeguard those involved, and the notion of county lines entered the public psyche. Entered the public psyche to the extent that it even had its own storyline in Hollyoaks. Now, whether that trend was recognised quickly enough is another matter, but the identification of the issue the response to it shows that you can recognise, react, and prevent a broad and significant safeguarding issue. Other issues, though, aren't quite as straightforward. And it's worth spending just a few minutes thinking about and talking about online exploitation. Now the reality is that we all know that the law has always been playing catch-up with the internet. The internet is developed and then the law reacts to that development. And that's perhaps always going to be the way in respect of evolving forms of technology. But as we all know, The internet is a place where, just as face-to-face, there are a group of people who look to abuse and to exploit others. Those trends of online exploitation have resulted in a shift in policing models. They've resulted in the creation of new offences. But they've also required the law to adapt and to continue to adapt in different ways. Anybody watching the news at the moment will consider that the way in which we use social media is a legal hot topic. It's something that politicians talk about in Parliament. But in respect to the next example, there is perhaps a disconnect between an online reality and the way in which the law works. And the example I want to use is the Mental Capacity Act. So as you all know, Mental Capacity Act 2005 starts to come into force 2007, vast majority in force 2009, and we have other parts changing and coming up on the horizon. The Mental Capacity Act then has been around for a significant amount of time. But it wasn't until 2019 that we had the law in place that answered the question as to what it means to have the mental capacity to use the internet and social media. That's effectively a decade to grapple with something that people were doing every day of their lives. And in particular, it's a decade. Of people with disorders of the functioning of the mind or brain using the internet and social media. Now, in that decade, there will have been occasions where those people have been exposed to risks associated with internet usage that we all know and recognize. But also, it will have been a decade where people have had restrictions put in place on accessing the internet, on using social media, on things that we all take for granted. And in reality, it's a decade where the law wasn't caught up with the technological reality in which we live. So in that decade, there was an opportunity, not only for people to be exploited, but to miss out potentially on doing something which lots of us take for granted. And when the law did grapple with the issue of what it means to have the mental capacity to access the internet and social media, it wasn't Parliament who dealt with it. It was the Court of Protection. The Court of Protection had to take the framework that was provided by the Mental Capacity Act and to apply it ...to the internet. And that came about in two joined cases... two joined decisions of Mr Justice Cobb... ...in the cases of re-A and re-B. So Mr Justice Cobb had to, from a standing start almost... ...formulate the relevant information... ...that somebody has to understand, retain use or way, in order to have capacity to make decisions as to accessing the internet. And and this is his formulation that he came up with. First, he said, you need to understand, retain, use or way, that information and images which you share on the internet or through social media could be shared more widely, including with people you don't know. Without you knowing, or being able to stop it. The second thing he said he had to understand, retain, use or weigh, is that it's possible to limit the sharing of personal information or images by using privacy and location settings on some internet and social media sites. The third thing he said you needed to understand, retain, use or weigh, If you place material or images on social media sites which are rude or offensive, or share those images, other people might be upset or offended. The fourth thing, he said, you need to understand, retain, use or weigh. Some people you meet or communicate with online, who don't otherwise know, may not be who they say they are. Someone who calls themselves a friend on social media may not be friendly. He went on to say, you have to understand, retain, use or weigh. Some people you meet or communicate with on the internet or through social media, who you don't otherwise know, may pose a risk to you. They may lie to you, or exploit or take advantage of you sexually, financially, emotionally, and or physically. They may want to cause you harm. And then finally, he said, you have to understand, retain, use or weigh, that if you look at or share extremely rude or offensive images, messages or videos online, you may get into trouble with the police because you may have committed a crime. So really, the heart of everything Mr Justice Cobb identified are about keeping yourself safe online. And when he gave his judgment in the case of Rie, he said something important at paragraph 30. This is what he said. It's widely known that internet use can be addictive. Accessing legal but extreme pornography, radicalization, or sites displaying interpersonal violence, for instance, could cause the viewer to develop distorted views of healthy human relationships and can be compulsive such sites could cause the viewer distress. I take the view that many capacitous internet users do not specifically consider this risk, or if they do, they are indifferent to this risk. I do not therefore regard it as appropriate to include this in the list of information relevant to the decision on a test of capacity under Section 3 of the Mental Capacity Act 2000. And 5. So here, Mr Justice Cobb identifies the trends of risk perfectly. He encapsulates it in the list, and there is the law as it stands. In fact, the case ended up going upstairs to the Court of Appeal in what's known as B versus the local authority. So the two cases are sort of held up as the examples as to how you approach somebody's capacity to make decisions about accessing the internet and social media. But here we are now, three years on, and as you understand, or you would understand, we are doing lots of cases about internet access for adults. Now, in the majority of those cases, the adults who we are representing in the Court of Protection are younger. The majority of the issues relating to internet usage that are causing these young people's um, capacity to be assessed are in respect of the potential for online exploitation or because for whatever reason that young person is accessing illegal content. But what about older people? What about issues when older people access The internet, just because somebody has reached a certain age doesn't mean they won't go online. My grandma's in her 90s. She goes online. She uses WhatsApp. Now, in terms of the risks, though, I would suggest that the risks posed to an older internet user are different to the risks posed, potentially, to a younger internet user. So what's surprising for us as practitioners is when we open capacity assessments, when we look at the assessments and we see that older people are being assessed through the lens of particular forms of exploitation. And I can be obvious and I can, I can be honest what we're surprised at. It's a bit strange to us when we see that older people's uh, capacity to access the internet is being considered in light of the risk of radicalization or being considered in the risk in the light of the risk of online sexual exploitation. Now you could say back to me, well Ian, um, actually um, older people are at risk potentially of online exploitation. It could be sexual, it could be radicalization. Just because someone's reached a certain age doesn't mean that's a risk to them. And you'd be right to say that to me. I fully accept that. What I can't accept, though, is when we follow the trends, or we follow the teaching or we follow the learning in respect of how we approach these questions, and we miss other things. And one of the things we miss in respect of capacity to access the internet, especially for older people, is the risks of financial exploitation, For some reason, and I'm I'm not quite sure what it is, in in the mindset of some people, financial exploitation of elderly people seems to be very much fixed in a person comes to their door, they say they need their roof done when they don't, that sort of thing. And people don't think about uh, older people accessing the internet and being exploited financially. And again, it's about familiarity, I suppose, People are following the trends, you know, the trends which people are usually being asked to be involved with if they're safeguarding professionals are things like catfishing. They're being asked to look at um, things like sexual exploitation, sexting, sharing of images, uh, online bullying. All of these are, if you like, on trend. But what we can't avoid is the fact that wider societal trends also transfer to the internet And that risks to particular groups of people will vary online just as much as they do in the offline world. So trends are important, but they can lead you down the wrong path. At the moment, one of the biggest set of trends that we can see and that we're about to follow the wave of is in respect of how sport is dealing with its safeguarding issues. And international trends are starting to form in respect of safeguarding in sport. For those of you who don't know, safeguarding in sport is starting to take roots. And it's not only taking roots domestically, it's taking roots internationally too. So over the last six years, there's been a huge acceleration in safeguarding in sport. So since Rio in 2016, there's had to be an IOC, International Olympic Committee, safeguarding officer, present and available to all athletes competing at the Olympic and Youth Olympic Games. In 2017, the International Olympic Committee launched their toolkit for safeguarding. And excitingly, in September 2021, the IOC launched a new piece of qualification, if you like the International Safeguarding Officer in Sport certificate. So things are taking off for safeguarding in sport, there is a trend of improvement, reflection and training. And interestingly and excitingly, behind it, there is a notion that that is going to be an international standard in some respect. And that international standard, or set of international standards, is one of the things that we're going to explore in this mini-series. But in the Anglosphere too, there has been a trend of reflection in certain sports. And most recently, domestically, as of June 2022, we had the final report of the White Review, where, as you know, In July 2020, a significant number of gymnasts and parents of gymnasts made allegations about the mistreatment of them within the sport of gymnastics. A number of concerns were raised that British British gymnastics had failed to deal appropriately with those complaints it had received. And in response to these issues raised, UK Sport and Sport England Appointed an White QC to undertake an independent review to look at the issues that were raised. And if you haven't read the White Review yet, can I commend it to you um, as something that you ought to be reading? It doesn't matter if you're listening to this podcast and you work in safeguarding in a statutory service or you work in safeguarding um, at in a faith organization, if you look at the White Review. I guarantee you, if you're interested in safeguarding, if you work in safeguarding, if you're studying something to do with safeguarding, you will take something out of that review. And once you've done that, once you've read the White Review, I'd suggest that you do something else and that you look down under. Because what you'll find is something very similar that has happened in Australia. So in August 2020, the Australian Human Rights Commission was commissioned by Gymnastics Australia after a series of complaints were made, alleging mental and physical abuse of athletes. When you read that cultural review of gymnastics, what the Australian Human Rights Commission identified are systemic risk factors within the sport, including risk factors with regard to the potential for child abuse, neglect, bullying and sexual harassment, and even assault towards athletes. And when you take those two things and put them side by side, after that, there's something else that I'd invite you to do. Look at what happened in the White Review. Look at what happened in Australia, and then put it next to what you know about the USA Gymnastics Sexual Abuse Scandal. Now, in respect of that scandal, we know that over two decades in the US, starting in the late 90s, that more than 300 people have alleged that they were sexually assaulted by gym owners, coaches, and staff working for gymnastics programs across the country. We know that in respect of over those 300 people, that the vast majority of those allegations have been substantiated in some ways. We know that there is a recognition in the United States that there may well even be more people especially female athletes, who were the victims of this sustained form of abuse. And many of you will have seen what happened in respect of various lawsuits that they brought, in particular, the lawsuits that were brought in respect of Larry Nassar. Now we know that Larry Nassar pleaded guilty to pornography charges, We know he pleaded guilty to charges in respect of sexual assault. And we know that he's now serving a significant prison sentence. What the question that we have to ask, looking at the domestic, the Australian, and the American experience, is how do we gather together the trends that have been shown within those three experiences, how do we gather them together and say to the sport in general, we need to stop this happening again? How do we get the systems in place that are built up to address what have been identified by those three reviews? And how importantly do we persuade on an international level, people to pick up the strands from the three reviews and tie them together into something which not only applies to gymnastics, but applies to other sports too. Because once we take those trends and we bind them up together, we're starting to put in place a strong safety net And that's a safety net that we just don't only have to use in sport. It's a safety net that we can apply to other settings too. When you look at those three specific things, although they're distinct, they're in different countries, they involve different people, what you see at the fundamental core of them are power imbalances and acceptance of those power imbalances. So... To answer my own question, is safeguarding trendy? Safeguarding has to be about identifying trends and then adapting to them. But despite my analogy of building together some sort of rope or building together some sort of safety net, it can't be something that we're bound by. We can't simply follow the trends. We have to learn from the trends and... We have to stop the trends before they form. Thank you for listening. If you want to know more about us, visit 39essex.com and we'd love to connect with you on socials. You can add me, Ian Brownhill, on Twitter at Council Tweets. You can connect with the Public Law team at 39 public law, And I hope you'll join us next time for Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast miniseries available where you download your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com.